tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Jeffrey Fowler, who I first met when he spoke at a Glossy Summit as president of Farfetch Americas. For a year now, Jeffrey has been CEO of Hodinkee, the 15-year-old watch hub that aims to make the world of watches accessible. Hodinkee first started as a watch blog and has since expanded to encompass an e-commerce platform, a print publication, and even watch insurance services. I wanted to ask Jeffrey about his plans to further grow the company and about the state of the watch market following the recent pandemic boom. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you so much, Jill. It's such a pleasure to be with you again. Uh, after all these years, it's, it's really a treat. Thank I know. You've you had some changes in your career. This is wild. I'm excited to hear all about what you're doing with Hodinkee. It's such, we were just talking about Hodinkee. But let's tell the audience, you told me what it means. What does it mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a fun word to say, but actually Hodinkee is a Czech word from the Slavic language and it means wristwatch spelled differently with a Y instead of with two E's. And uh, Ben Clymer, the founder of Hodinkee, when he was coming up with a name, for his watch blog, wanted something fun and easy to say, and uh, Hodinkee was it. It has something to do with watches, but it, it's not so obvious unless you speak Czech. So. Right on. Well, what watch are you wearing today, I have to ask? Yeah, great question. One that I get often, as you can imagine, it's part of the job, but I'm wearing a, it's called a Zenith uh, El Primero Chronomaster. It's a Zenith limited edition that was done for Hodinkee uh, ah. in collaboration with Hodinkee. So we cool. launched this watch last year. It's part of our limited editions kind of business uh, where we collaborate directly with brands like Zenith in this case, or Hermes, or Leica cameras, or Vacheron Constantin, or G-Shock. And we create these really awesome, uh, unique, limited creations. And this was one of those. We, we sold, I can't remember the exact quantity, it was about 10,000 hard watch. We sold them out in a matter of minutes. So it just gives you a sense of just how, how cool the opportunity to collaborate with these brands is and, and how desirable it is. How cool. We have to dig into collabs. I didn't know all of this. Oh, yeah, but for sure. Yeah. <laughs> tell me about the the business model for Hodinkee. Like you're an e-commerce platform. What all are you doing? How are you making money, I would say? Yeah, I mean, it warrants probably a little trip down memory lane to give you the full story. But um, as mentioned, when the business was founded in 2008 by Ben, it was founded as a blog, a watch blog. He had worked previously in the world of finance. All of us remember, those of us uh, who are old enough remember especially what happened in 2008. Lehman Brothers collapsed. The financial world kind of had you know reverberations happening. Um, he decided to do a pretty hard pivot from the world of finance into uh, blogging about watches. He was someone who was passionate about watches from a young age. He'd been gifted a watch from his grandfather that really inspired a lifelong love of the category and uh, also wanted to try his hand at journalism. So he began the blog as kind of a passion project. Ben often says, you know, this isn't a business that was built out of a boardroom. It didn't have a business plan for the first, you know, 10 years or more, uh, which our investors, I'm not so sure, love to hear that, but look, we're still here. We're very successful. So um, it was, you know, just this passion that fueled the growth of the business. But for the better part of the first 10 years, let's call it seven or eight years, it really was a blog. It was a, a, a content business about the world of watches. So on the one hand, it's kind of the, the New York Times of watches. So you have the news angle, breaking news, you know, developments in the world of watches. There's kind of the uh, personalities and the people of watches. So sort of a people magazine, if you will, um, talking about collectors and watchmakers and executives at watch firms. Um, 
you know, people that in some cases are, are incredibly famous, uh, like a John Mayer, for example. And then sometimes people that just absolutely have a passion and a love for watches. One of our more recent videos was a New York City crane operator who has this beautiful collection of watches that he collected over the years. And then, you know, there's a, even more recently, we started to get into kind of the fashion side of watches. We hired a style editor uh, into the business and she's thinking about watches for the intersection of fashion and watches. So that's the content side of the business. And when you have something that is as all encompassing and engrossing as Hodinkee for watches and watches are highly enthusiastic, um, you know, kind of category, people that love watches truly love watches, you build up this really um, amazing community of people. And so we talk often about content breeds community. And it was only around year seven or eight that the business started to meaningfully get into the commerce side. So selling watches. And it first began with watch-related products like straps and accessories. Eventually, the limited editions idea was born. Uh, the first limited edition collaboration was a collection of watches made with an independent watchmaker uh, called Maximilian Busser. The, the brand is called MB&F. These were like 10 watches. I think they were retailed for about $50,000 each. Uh, and they sold out in a matter of minutes. And these were immediately successful products um, from an incredible uh, talented watchmaker and Hodinkee collaborating together on a project. Uh, that led to the opportunity to sell uh, vintage watches, watches you know that sort of have a bit of history behind them, one-off one watches. Usually they have a story to tell and some kind of a you know, a patina or, or patrimony to them that's really interesting for the collector to discover. And then in 2017, so now we're talking here almost 10 full years after the business was founded, Hodinkee became the first online-only authorized retailer of watches. Now, watches traditionally have been retailed through bricks-and-mortar businesses and historically through, like, mom-and-pop kind of uh, businesses, you know, like local jewelers in the market, all the way up to, you know, large multinational retailers like a Tourneau or a Watches of Switzerland. Um, but they've been slow and kind of somewhat reluctant, quite honestly, to embrace digital distribution or online distribution. And Hodinkee changed all of that. In 2017, it became the first online-only authorized retailer watches working directly with the brands. In that case, it was eight brands that they launched with uh, and obviously wrote about it on Hodinkee.com. So it was breaking news you know, on our own website. Now we have the ability to not only you know, foster the passion for watches as a category, but also to you know help you to connect with the opportunity to find and discover a watch that you love. Now, fast forward a few years later, it's only been five years, we're now the authorized retailer of 40 watch brands. Um, we count amongst the partners Hermes, Apple, Omega, the number two watch brand in the world after Rolex, Tag Heuer, Bulgari, Breitling, I mean, you name it. It's really an incredible, incredible assortment of partners. And then even more recently than that, we've layered in the uh, category of pre-owned watches. So here it's distinct from vintage in that it's not 30 years old or, or, or older. It's newer watches, but they've previously been owned by someone else. So kind of the secondary market, as you know, Joe, has boomed over the last few years. And watches have been no stranger to that. They've seen their own kind of boom over the past few years as people have got into the business of collecting, but also buying and selling watches. And in some cases, profiting from the sale of a watch that they were able to buy because the, the premiums in the secondary market can be quite quite lucrative. So that's been, that's our business in a nutshell today. I mean, there's more to it than that, but you yes. know, we'll, uh, kind of a pretty comprehensive site now between content community and commerce. Very cool. What can you tell you about the size of the company? The, I don't know, annual revenue and the size of the, of the team. How, how many people yeah, are operating yeah. this machine? 
Yeah. Uh, so the size of the business, you know, we, what we've shared publicly was our you know, sort of 2021 numbers. We kind of eclipsed the 100 million mark. We're not in the business of sharing a lot of, you know, revenue figures as we're a private business, but, you know, 100 million was the milestone that we had shared sort of back around 2021. Um, the uh, size of the team were a little over 100 employees, about 130 employees. And really what's interesting is to see just how organically the growth of the business has been right up to a point. That point was actually early 2021, and I'll speak to what happened there. But when it was started as a blog, it was Ben and a handful of employees for the first sort of six, seven, or eight years. You know, people that were, again, like Ben, super passionate about the category and about being a part of something, you know, small but mighty. Because, uh, you know, I, I can remember my own first awareness of Hodinkee back in 2013. I was an executive at Tag Heuer and eventually became an executive at Cartier. And I knew Hodinkee to be this massively influential brand and group of people in the industry. And I've come to discover it was Ben and about five other people, you know, in my <laughs> mind, it was this big newsroom of editors and like, you know, really, really like super polished professional team, but it was really just a small startup. Um, up until, you know, probably 2017, the business was still about 30 people, 35 people, um, was doing, you know, maybe around $30 million of revenue, um, at its peak. And again, kept growing to, um, where we got into the, the pandemic, where I think all of us sort of experienced, you know, similarly in this industry, like a moment of incredible uncertainty, followed by unexpectedly uh, a tremendous opportunity for growth and, 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 and customer uh, relationship building, because people were deprived of a lot of the things they normally did with their lives. They were at home and they were discovering things. And many, many people discovered the watch industry. And it's not, you know, many people discover the watch industry through Hodinkee or quickly afterwards discover Hodinkee. Um, in 2021, we acquired a business based in Atlanta, Georgia called Crown and Caliber. Hodinkee and Crown and Caliber became one company, Hodinkee Inc. We still operate Crown and Caliber as a website and then you have Hodinkee, but Crown and Caliber was the pre-owned, um, the point of entry into pre-owned because Crown and Caliber is a pre-owned watch specialist. They were buying and selling watches uh, from a community of sellers and buyers. Um, really tremendous business that has added to the growth story of Hodinkee has brought us, you know, to that sort of hundred million milestone, added quite a number of employees as well. And now we have our New York hub, Hodinkee and Atlanta, Crown and Caliber, and the two businesses, uh, you know, work really complementarily with each other. Amazing. What can you tell me about, gosh, resale pre-owned versus new watches and what's happening in in terms of demand and and price points and Danny Parisi and our, my team has written about this a lot. We were saying, why isn't Danny doing this interview? Because I want to talk to Jeff. Anyway, but <laughs> but go ahead. What can you tell me about that balance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Danny, I'm sure could do an amazing job at that and, <laughs> and probably worth the, worth the question as well. Um, the industry is a really interesting one because, you know, obviously watches are made in a number of all over the world, but the, the places that are most famous for their sort of watch culture and patrimony are undoubtedly Switzerland. And I think the kind of Swiss made, you know, stamp at the bottom of the, the watch dial is often what I say is the most important thing about the dial, even more so than maybe the brand or the model is that it's Swiss made. That means all the parts are manufactured in Switzerland, assembled in Switzerland, and quality control happens in Switzerland, end-to-end, 100% done in Switzerland, uh, which we, need, we probably don't need to remind your, your listeners, this is a pretty small country. It's not, not, a, not, not a massive country in terms of land mass or population. Um, Japan has a really rich watch history as well with you know brands 
uh, like most notably Seiko. I think Seiko brand has an incredible history and now Grand Seiko, you know, sort of the, the, the higher end sort of um, sister brand, if you will. Um, so, you know, the, the places where watches come from the world, and there are many more, the UK has a rich watch history, the United States, we're actually, we just finished filming an editorial piece about the kind of watch history of America, which we're getting ready to, to launch on our site, which will be fascinating. But, um, you know, I think that there's a finite amount of supply and some of that is, is because of where the watches are made. I, I often say like many industries can kind of scale up production. You can't really scale Switzerland. You can add, you know, a certain percentage of capacity for growth of that industry. But if you take a brand like Rolex, which makes about a million watches a year, it would be difficult to imagine a scenario where Rolex could make 5 million watches a year or 10 million watches a year because of just some of the constraints around what it takes to be a Rolex watch. And yet you have an inordinate amount of demand. And you asked about how the growth of the industry could be measured. I think uh, over the past few years, the Swiss watch industry has had record year after record year after record year. We've also observed uh, the consumer base getting younger, younger consumers discovering watches um, for the first time, perhaps, or just on the average getting younger, which I think suggests that even in a world where now we can have a smartwatch, a device that can literally do everything from measure our heart rate to, you know, call 911 if we get into a car accident or anything in between, you know, text our mothers, whatever we need to do, this analog mechanical device, which was thought to have been, you know, probably made extinct by a smartwatch, has become more and more popular year after year. People have understood just what it, what what differentiates it and what makes, makes it special relative to, say, a wearable device or a smartwatch. Um, so the industry is growing, but supply just can't keep up with demand. So that creates this opportunity where more people want to buy the thing than there are the thing to buy. That creates, you know, um, obviously scarcity at points of retail. So the new watch market has never been stronger, never been healthier. Uh, it's literally nearly impossible to go into a Rolex dealer or an Audemars Piguet dealer or a Patek Philippe dealer and be able to buy a watch at retail because of that scarcity of supply relative to demand. But it also creates the opportunity, as you know, for a secondary market to emerge when demand uh, outstrips supply that creates an opportunity for buyers to become sellers. And so over the past few years, there have been, you know, businesses built up around this, not, 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 not excluding Crown and Caliber, which built a business up around this. And Hodinkee's acquisition of Crown and Caliber gave us this strategic you know, pillar platform to be able to grow in the pre-owned space. And we think that that's a very worthy and noble space um, because, you know, watch enthusiasts want to be able to approach the category from any number of different directions, you know, build a collection, you know, cycle certain watches out and other watches in. Maybe I want to purchase uh, a watch and I can't afford to buy a new, I want to buy a pre-owned piece. Maybe um, the pre-owned piece is sometimes three times more expensive than the brand new equivalent to it. Right. And, and I just want the piece so badly, I'm willing to pay that premium for it. But, um, you know, we think it's, a, and, and again, it, you can see that, you know, we're not alone in thinking that Rolex themselves launched their pre-owned business this past year. Um, other watch brands have gotten into the space as well. So it's exciting to see it. It's a dynamic time for an industry that is literally hundreds of years old and uh, still continuing to grow and set records. And we're just excited to be a part of it. Yes. Tell me how many official luxury watch retailers there are now. You were, you guys were first. Um, what's going on in terms of the increasing competition and also, um, I guess, how tight of a hold brands have? Are they like loosening their grip, would, I, would you say, in terms of like the constraints that formerly uh, was a go-between? But go ahead. No, totally. Great question. I think um, if I understood your first part of the question correctly, how many online authorized retailers Correct. are there now? Because we were the first from 2017. Uh, the answer would surprise you perhaps, but 
very few that are online only. In fact, most of the places that are authorized to sell watches online have had historically a corresponding bricks and mortar retail network of stores. So, you know, they likely got to e-commerce later in their, 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 their lifespan. Um, and, and very few have emerged to be online only. I think Hodinkee, uh, clearly the pioneer of that space because historically we have never had a physical bricks and mortar presence. We've never had a retail presence. And again, all credit due to Ben and the team. It took the better part of those first 10 years of convincing watch brands that, you know, that th this watch blog as it blossomed into a, a large and vibrant community, uh, that that community really wanted to transact online. That they, the, the number one question that the Hodinkee community used to ask Ben and the editorial team prior to launching was, we want to buy things from you. When will you make it available for us to buy it online? So obviously Hodinkee did that in 2017. Uh, there may be others that have emerged since, but for the most part, if, if, if businesses are selling watches online, it's because they have a distribution agreement f through physical retail, and that gives them the ability to sell the watch online. And, and it's also probably worth mentioning certain watch brands don't sell online at all, either directly or through their wholesale network. Brands like Rolex or Patek Philippe or Audemars Piguet, they, they, you can't buy a new version of those watches online. You can only buy them. In, uh, in, in a physical store. And I'm sure you know the statistics for fashion that over the course of the past like 10 years, especially, you know, fashion has moved more than 10, now probably 15% of sales online. In the watch industry, it's still only 5% of all new watches are sold online. 95% are still sold offline. Uh, just to give you a sense of like, you know, the channel of, of, of digital watch sales is small, but growing. And that's the important part. That's the important part where, you know, we've been an agent of that change. I think Hodinkee in some ways has been a trailblazer in that. And obviously, I think over the course of time, we expect 5% will go up, not down. So we like our position. We like where we are. And certainly we treasure the valuable relationships that we have, you know, with the brands that I mentioned, like an Omega or an Hermes or an Apple for that matter, you know, where we're authorized to sell Apple watches is the only online authorized retailer of Apple watches besides Apple. Um, the, uh, the, the other piece to your question was, um, uh, brands, sorry, yeah, brands. I will say the word preciousness, yeah. but yeah. like, yeah, yes, correct. how precious are uh, they? I mean, based on what I said earlier about the kind of like massive demand relative to supply, you can probably guess the answer to the question, which is that brands have a ton of control over how their brand shows up in the world, where it's distributed. Um, one trend we're seeing of late is brands, you know, um, streamlining their distribution, you know, um, reducing the number of doors and retailers uh, to have more quality over quantity. And again, when you have scarcity of supply to demand and you know that the products that you're creating will have um, you know, there is demand, there's a surplus of demand. You can be very thoughtful and selective about where you're going to retail it. Um, there's an element also in this industry of cyclicality. You know, this is a, again, hundreds of years old industry. And I think, you know, if you just consider the more modern, you know, last 20 or 30 or 40 years, there is an element of cyclicality where brands in moments of strength definitely try to sort of pull in a bit more uh, of their distribution um, strategies and sort of try and do more uh, direct relationship building with the end customer. When the cycles flip a little bit, that those that, that distribution can sort of like uh, loosen a bit and, and the retailers, you know, increase in terms of their importance. Um, historically speaking, this is an industry that has been uh, very, very, very overwhelmingly reliant on 
distribution through retailers. Watch brands historically have been manufacturers and marketers of watch watches. And, and then you have the distribution of the retailers. And so that's obviously, again, an opportunity like where we've come in as an online-only distributor uh, of those watches. And, and again, built that from eight brands to now 40 brands. And, and, and we continue to see that growing into the future. So even where there is a high degree of control, there's still opportunity. I think it's incumbent upon the retailers like us or like our, you know, our, our fellow retailers to just show what's the added value. Like, what is it that we bring to the relationship that is unique and difficult maybe for the watch brand to be able to do by themselves. And so through a partnership, the partnership economics makes sense. Yeah, I was going to ask, I was like, is this an old school like question to ask? But obviously not if a lot of brands, a lot, at least two still only sell online. But like, is there a ceiling to like what people will buy through a digital channel in your experience um, in terms of yeah. price point? Go ahead. You know, and, and I would have been able to provide you ample evidence from even former companies that know there indeed is no ceiling on what people will spend. It's, it's really about access. If they get access to the right product and obviously through a trusted resource, uh, often there needs to be a relationship involved there with someone that they know that they have that high level of trust. Um, you know, the sky is the limit. I mean, I can tell you that just in the year that I've been at Hodinkee, we've sold watches of six figures and beyond. Um, and again, you know, we can do those things um, even where we're given a challenge to source a very rare or exclusive piece or a difficult to find piece, someone's kind of holy grail watch. And we'll take that challenge on and, 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 and we'll find it, you know, so we'll, we'll be able to sort of connect the, the demand and the supply. But um, even when that sort of personal aspect isn't there, you know, I think the comfort level now with buying, you know, higher price point categories and products online is very high. Um, I know that, you know, Hoodinkee has had sales of, again, a six figure sort of number and above that have been transacted through, um, you know, Apple Pay, like the double click on the side of your iPhone using your face ID and, you know, you have a transaction value of six figures. And um, that's, 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 that's kind of normal nowadays, I think. Um, it's really, again, just about being able to provide access to the right things. Oh my gosh. Who are these people? <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. sounds really nice, but tell me yeah, about yeah. like the luxury experience. Like the, the watch is a luxury in itself. These people, you know, aren't getting an Amazon box delivered at their door. Like what is the experience they expect from you? I think, you know, universally speaking, I think what customers want when they shop online is, um, is generally dependability, reliability, speed, and, and kind of frictionless wherever possible. So those are the things that I think we try to solve for. And, and I think thus far I've done that pretty well. I mean, Hodinkee's, um, you know, website has, has, has been selling products now for really going back over 10 years. We've tried to deliver a, a user experience and a customer experience that again, tries to shorten the gap between reading about something in our case, falling in love with it, maybe discovering it for the first time or discovering something more about it than you knew before. Because our editorial team are just unbelievable and they just go so deep on the product. And, and you emerge from that with a desire to want to have the product, you know, you can click, you know, a hyperlink right within the article or a box at the bottom of the article, you know, and that will sort of like transport you over to the ability to then learn about the product more from an e-commerce standpoint, the PD, we call the PDP, right? The technical term product description page, you know, the specifications of the watch, the construction of the watch, maybe some historical things about the watch and, and, and size information, you know, the, the, the diameter of the, of the dial, which is important for people when they consider the wrist. Um, you know, and then you transact and we obviously offer all the modern, you know, seamless ways of transacting, either pay all at once, split it into installments. You know, we have a customer service team ready at the, at, 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 at people's need to help with answering any final questions they may have. 
our delivery times are short, you know, they're very dependable that we're going to hit those delivery times like repeatedly. We offer people the opportunity to return or exchange. You know, it's all the, all the, all the modern things, which now I think for the most part are just kind of commoditized across e-commerce, but you still have to do them incredibly well because it's like table stakes. If you're not doing those things really well, if you're not delivering on a really solid, smooth experience, um, you likely may not get the customer back. And I think I would say that probably, and I, I couldn't sort of point to a data set to back this up. Yeah. The strongest correlation between, you know, you've acquired a customer once and you're going to get that customer back versus you're not going to get them back is, is things like that. It's the speed of delivery. It's the smoothness of the transaction. Like that's really just what's going to earn heart share, and you know, loyalty from customers time and again. Yes. Well, you guys have become such an authority and as you're becoming more known as an e-commerce, a, a retailer, like tell me about that balance. I wasn't even thinking in these terms, but in terms of like paid content or like maintaining that credibility as, as you're becoming more in cahoots with these brands, I guess, on, on the content yeah, yeah, side. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's really interesting because I think this is kind of um, a theme uh, in the commentary that takes place on Hoodinky. I should mention for the listeners that aren't as familiar with us that we actively encourage and engage with our readers in comments. Nice. Um, so that they're a part of the conversation. That's really, I think, when you say you're a community-based brand, you know, having that um, ability to actually play a role in in the engagement is a part of that. And so, but in the comments, you know, we, we obviously you know censor for uh, intolerant speech and things that just cross a line. We have a, a kind of like a code of conduct people have to abide nice. by in the comment field, so that you know they're not sort of doing things they shouldn't do. But um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll allow for like rich debate otherwise. And one of the things we often hear is that people question, you know, our dividing line, let's say between the editorial integrity of something and then the commercial desire to sell something. And I think the way we have always responded or gotten comfortable with it is that, uh, and you, you may laugh as you're uh, kind of in the media side of things, Jill, but, you know, like you know, the printed word or the digitally printed word, like by itself doesn't make money. It's just not a business that like typically people are going to pay a lot of money for. So then you have like, if you want to you know, engage in, in sort of furthering the, the collective wisdom or thought or conversation about a particular topic, be it news or politics, or in our case, you know, a product category that is beloved by, by many, many people, you, you have to fund it. And the way you can fund it is many ways. And, you know, so we have an advertising business and our advertisers who have been with us in some cases from the very, very beginning, um, Ben, you know, shared with me the other day, the very first advertising contract he ever signed. And it was quite funny to look back at something that was signed 15 years ago and realize the value of what that would be now. And, and we would probably charge a hundred times more now versus what he charged <laughs> when he was just getting started. But, you know, it, it, you mentioned that we have a printed magazine, the back cover of that printed magazine from issue number one has been Cartier. They've taken the back cover to do beautiful, rich imagery and you know, brand imagery from Cartier. And I talk about an incredible partner to have for, you know, a, a startup company like ours. So, you know, that's one revenue stream. And we, we've worked with, you know, many, many watch brands on delivering incredible, you know, rich brand partnership stories, either, you know, through just run of site or media or activations, in-person events. We just did a great partnership with a, a luxury automobile brand out in Park City, Utah, where we appeared on site and kind of merged our two brands together. And that was a, a paid sponsored activity for us. And that helps to fund and, and generate the opportunity to do some of what we do, but, but, but not the extent of it. Um, selling watches is the other revenue stream. And again, I think the way we've gotten comfortable with this, we clearly love this category. We don't, we wouldn't spend, you know, we wouldn't publish five times a day, seven days a week, news and information about the category. If it wasn't rooted in this deep set love and passion for the category, 
So it doesn't strike us as anything wrong about then wanting to kind of help more people access the category and buy the category and transact and sell, you know, within the category, the same category we're writing about from this place of love and passion. And ultimately, you know, our our mission, as you say to me, is that you make the world of watches better, make the world of watches more accessible. And access for many, many people has often been the challenge. It's been the ability to get the thing that they love, whether because of just price or supply and demand or access. So in some ways, selling the watches is doing that. Now, do we, you know, I, I suppose the the really unasked questions is, are you putting your thumb on the scales? Like, are you really pushing the brands that you sell more than you're writing about watches? And therefore, is your integrity in any way question? And I, I would tell you, and again, like, I don't really have like a proof point to point to other than just to say that these are hardworking, honest journalists, people that love the category that are going to write about the things they love. Occasionally, they'll also take a point of view on something they don't love as much just to be able to sort of, you know, have a, have an honest reckoning with a product or a brand or something that they want to sort of speak to don't necessarily love and and that's just part of it you know I think we probably would be fair to say too that you know the things we don't write about often are sometimes as telling as maybe we don't love those products as well but obviously clearly if we retail a product and we we are proud to be retailers of that product of that brand you know why wouldn't we write about it we're proud we're proud to be in, in business with these brands and therefore not ashamed to sort of cover it as well. We'll be right back after this quick break. Let's talk about something that you did just write about, um, or your team, um, the this collaboration that just happened that's getting a lot of buzz with like Swatch and Omega. But yeah, like, tell yeah, me about yeah. the the significance of that, and also some recent, um, I guess, in the last year, like collaborations or launches that really um, impacted the industry. Yeah, I think, you know, in our lifetime, all of us can remember just probably some really iconic product launch launch moments. Like everyone remembers like when iPhones used to generate lines out the Apple door, right? So like people would line up for the new iPhone. I worked uh, once upon a time, I worked for Tesla and I was there when the Model 3 was launched. And the day that people were able to place a deposit for the Model 3, like lines out the door across every Tesla location in the world, because people wanted to put a deposit down for a product that was eventually going to come. And I think, you know, again, that that's the, the recipe of success is like take two brands that each are known for something really incredibly special and, and put them together and make something like mega, you know? So like Supreme and Louis Vuitton, right? I mean, you just come up with example after example after example of these really incredible mashups of uh, incredibly illustrious brands known for one thing, collaborating together on, on, on something, you know, common. Um, and I think the common denominator there is that, that sort of two things that become one. It's the the, the scarcity or the limited nature of it. It's the kind of ephemeral nature of it, that it's it's a moment in time where it happens and you want to be a part of that happening. I mean, nowadays, like, you know, where, where we all have the ability to stream any content, whatever we want to do, there's not, there aren't so many things that like cultural moments that bring us together in a point of time and drops kind of do that, right? So drops of any category, whether it's a sneaker or a watch or again, a, a Louis Vuitton trunk with Supreme logos on it or something. And um, that what happened a little over a year ago, which is what you're referencing, was March 2022, uh, in fact, was two brands that are a part of one of the largest watch groups in the world, the Swatch Group, um, teased over you know social media and a couple of other things the new york times they did a full print uh, ad they teased that something was coming and it was like swatch and omega which are the two 
big brands within that group, Swatch Group. Um, but Swatches, as you probably know, you know, are priced at sort of forty dollars, sixty dollars, hundred dollars, maybe on the higher end. Um, typically, you know, uh, like you know, lower quality sort of uh, components and, and lower costs, of course. And then Omega, on the other hand, as I mentioned previously, second biggest watch brand in the world behind Rolex. You know, price points in the thousands of dollars. You know, like really incredibly uh, well-crafted products and like, you know, expensive products, thousands of dollars. So what these two brands share in common is they're both watches, but they're distinctly different like on other ends of the spectrum. And so what eventually what became evident was that they were launching this collaboration, which was all rooted on the history of one Omega watch, which is called the Speedmaster. And the Speedmaster is an important watch in the history of watchmaking. It was the very first watch that was worn on the surface of the moon. It was worn by the Apollo astronauts. So it's often called like the moon watch, even though it's the Speedmaster is the actual name of it. And funny enough, it was actually created as a chronograph, as a watch to be worn by like, you know, race car drivers to time motorsports. It wasn't even intended for the purposes of aviation, but it happens to be because it's a chronograph that it can kind of measure elapsed time. It was really good for timing events. And so the Apollo astronauts wore it as a sort of a, a backup to some of their other timing devices in the event they needed something mechanical in nature that wouldn't be subject to an electrical outage. They could still time certain things. Um, Swatch, which again is that brand that's known for making the watches under $100, basically worked with, um, with Omega and the two teams collaborated together on a collection of Speedmasters, the moon watch, but as rendered by a Swatch kind of like product quality and sort of, um, you know, iteration. And it, it, you know, they're about $250, give or take. Uh, and they made one for each of the kind of celestial bodies in our solar system. So they made one for the, the sun, the moon, and all of the planets. Um, and I mean, all I can tell you is it was a global worldwide phenomenon. Like it was one of those iPhone moments. It was one of those like Tesla Model 3 moments. It was a total blockbuster. You had people days in advance camping in front of Swatch stores. I, I couldn't oh tell you my lifetime if there was ever a line in front of a Swatch store until <laughs> last year, but there was worldwide. And of course, like, you know, it kind of broke, uh, bro broke the system for a day or a few days there. And uh, the, the watches became like these unbelievably precious commodities. People were flipping them for many, many times the value. Um, no, and again, this all happened a year ago. So a year later, and 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 and, and again, just like less we need reminding. I'm the CEO of a watch business, right? I probably could have the whole collection if I wanted to, like pull a few strings, ask a few favors. Not that I'm bragging, but just saying, you know. <laughs> um, I go to the watch store, the Swatch store inside of Grand Central every day that I come into the city because I live north of the city. I commuted. And I go there every day with the intent of seeing if they have any moon swatches in stock. And I just ask, do you have any moon swatches in stock? And almost every time the answer is no, they're sold out. They get a daily delivery of the in the boutique and they sell them out immediately. So, I mean, you talk about a product that clearly has hit a sweet spot with the audience, like that a year later, they're still selling out of them every single day that they get them. And then just a couple of days ago, they did uh, one year kind of later, they anniversary the launch of the moon swatch with kind of the next iteration. They teased it again with a couple of social media posts, a couple of days notice. And again, at this point, people kind of knew what to expect. People were waiting, you know, out in front of these swatch stores. They launched it in London, Zurich, Milan, and, and Tokyo in the physical boutiques. Um, you know, same global phenomenon. We covered the art, the, the news. Um, you know, it's, it, it's just been a real incredible phenomenon that again, yeah. this is not the kind of thing that typically happens in the watch industry. I will tell you, it's like <laughs> one thing to happen with a Tesla and Apple, but in the watch industry, this has just been 
uh, really, really bonkers. And I think is one more indicator of just how much enthusiasm there has been growing within this industry over the past few years. So a big credit to the, the folks who came up with that marketing campaign and the product that sat behind it. Um, clearly, they, they had a winner. And, uh, you know, I think the whole industry has, has won as a result of that type of a collaboration. Jeffrey, I tell you what, I was really um, thinking with this story that you were going to. And then a year later, they came out with the, the second iteration. And so a fool was at the counter and I said, do you have any watches? And they sold it to me the day before it went out. <laughs> the, day before, yeah. the day before the watches came out. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I wish. Yeah. No, it's funny is I had people emailing me like the day before being like, are you going to be able to get me this one? And I'm like, no. Like, number one, I don't live in London, Zurich, Milan or Tokyo and I'm not going to get on a, pl- a plane. But it, it, it's people just asking out of the woodwork if I could get them access to it. But it oh, shows you again this, this like viral demand for this incredible collaboration. And um, again, not to, to pull it back to us, but at Hodeki, but I mean, we have the limited edition kind of area of our business. Yes. And these things are really jewels of the crown for us. So when we do a collaboration, we just did another one uh, yesterday, and this is with the, the famed British uh, luggage maker called Globetrotter. If you're familiar with Globetrotter, they make gorgeous, incredibly, impeccably crafted luggage. And we did a, a collection of uh, watch kind of attache cases, if you will. Last year that we did one that holds 10 watches and a, a few kind of watch related accessories um, inside of a beautiful, you know, gray uh, leather with like kind of brown corners, uh, briefcase style. And then yesterday we launched a six watch carrier and a three watch carrier. And again, uh, the kind nice. of recipes for success is there that when brands that do things beautifully collaborate with other brands that have a real point of view, it's 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 just such a strong recipe for success and and i think success not necessarily measured just in the kind of you know revenue spike or the kind of customer or attention spike but it's just more um the enjoyment we all get from sort of putting these beautiful things in the world and, and, and then appreciating them for what they are. So, I mean, when you ask me what, what, what watch I wear, I almost every day now wear a Hodinkee limited edition watch, not because they're the most valuable watches we sell. In some cases, far from it. We have some that cost, you know, $150, $200, but more just because it gives me the opportunity to tell a story to someone who, who might ask about what I'm wearing or has it has a glance down at my wrist and I just gives me a chance to talk about like the cool work that we do. Yeah. I'm really proud of the team. You couldn't tell. Like it's unbelievably like cool to see the creativity and the kind of passion that comes from within our teams and the enthusiasm that the brands we collaborate with show back to us to create these awesome things. About how often are you collaborating these days? And also, um, I would think that this amazing forum that you've got going via your comments are really kind of informing what people are excited about in your world. Totally. Yeah, yeah. totally. Sometimes the, uh, sometimes the aspirations of our community are, are impossible, so we can't always deliver on what it, what it is that they want. But it's certainly like amazing to sort of see what people would dream up. Um, yeah, so, you know, there were, once upon a time, you know, we would do these collaborations just really when as the business was a scrappy startup, like when we had the ability to pull the funding together to actually make it happen. Like back in that early collaboration that I mentioned with Maximilian Busser, the, the 10 watches, those were retailing at you know, 50,000 each. You can imagine how much each one of those cost to produce and then Hodinkee acquired. And obviously it's, it's you know, when you know that they're all going to sell out in a matter of minutes, it's a sure thing. It's like, okay, yeah, no brainer. We would totally do that. But you never know that going into it. It's always a bit of a, like a, is this going to work? This is a big bet for a small scrappy startup team to make. And full credit to Ben and the team. They just put their money where their mouth was. They put their money where their passion was. Obviously, Max created a gorgeous, gorgeous watch. And that was successful. But maybe the second one wasn't going to be successful. Of course, we now know that they've gone from sort of success to success. 
And um, yeah, I think, you know, I can g- give you an example from December of this past year. We did a, a series of watches with one of our uh, investors and sort of beloved friends and contributors, John Mayer. He actually met Ben back in the sort of early days of Hodinkee, approached him and said, I, I love the category. I love what you're doing. I would love to meet. And through that relationship and friendship, you know, they produced a number of like really cool projects together. John did a series of three uh, Casio G-Shock watches with us, each one kind of a reference to his musical career and his younger years when he was, you know, playing on Casio keyboards and playing around with like these kind of keyboards that he would, he would lust after and hope for getting them as a Christmas present from his parents. These are like 200, $250 watches. And in each case we sold like 7,000, 8,000, 9,000 units. And again, we're talking sold out in a matter of, you know, seconds or minutes online that that that's a kind of captive desire for them but just to prove that sometimes it's not about like expensive and fewer units sometimes it's nine thousand units and now i get a chance when i'm out and about to sometimes occasionally see someone wearing a john mayer g-shock and it's like pretty cool to see that someone had you know obviously uh was inspired by something that we had done um but to answer your question how often are we doing them um, you know, in the early days, it was a few every now and then. And now we're trying to develop, you know, partnerships and collaborations to have them out, you know, once a month or so, just to be able to kind of keep some uh, novelty, some newness, some excitement coming. And um, again, it's a challenge to us internally to always think about how does Hodinkee as a brand come through into the world in a physical sense, given that we don't ourselves produce or manufacture products. We produce, you know, our, our we say our, our brand is knowledge somewhat, you know, like we're, we're writing about furthering the knowledge of, of the industry, but you know, we obviously created sort of a brand and a lifestyle out of that. And so we've, we've been able to work with some really incredible collaborators along the way. And, you know, trying to do that about once a month is our cadence now to be able to kind of like keep the freshness element to it. Um, and, and what's interesting is, is that some of those collaborations have started to come from outside of the world of watches as well. I mentioned that you know, we've done two uh, cameras with Leica, the German cam- uh, camera manufacturer, which, you know, for photography enthusiasts is really kind of the, the pinnacle of camera manufacturing. And you can imagine like for us, uh, an editorial site of the watch industry, the written word is very powerful, but the, the photographed image is arguably just as powerful. Um, so photography is kind of in our roots. It's in our DNA. And Leica has been an amazing collaborator with us. Um, you know, Globetrotter is another example where it's related to watches, but it actually isn't to watch. It's just a kind of an accessory to watch uh, collecting. And, and those kinds of things have just been really fun and really cool for us. I like that this conversation um, turned to John Mayer. Hi, John, if you're listening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, what's up? Um, <laughs> but no, I have to ask, speaking of like John Mayer, and first of all, what is the correct terminology for like a watch nut, a watch head? What, what do you call the... What, yeah, I, I think it depends. Watch enthusiast would be probably enthusiast. the way to describe it. Uh, watch collector, if they're like John, and they've amassed an incredible collection of watches, which uh, which is just really like unbelievably cool to see and some rare pieces some really, really unbelievable pieces. But it, it's not even about the size of the collection, the, the, the cost of the collection, the value of the collection. It's just about, it, most collections will tell you, it's just about finding things that really speak to you, things that are, you know, really personal to your taste. Sometimes it's about the hunt of really trying to find something. But yeah, watch enthusiast is, is this terminology. I like it. Do Sometimes you, we say watch nerds, watch dorks. I think like all of us <laughs> who are really into the category like say that with a degree of love and respect, you know, so. Yes. I think you're a watch nerd in the best way. I asked you about that collab <laughs> and you knew your shit. Anyway, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, really impressive, to, yeah. Jeffrey. Yeah, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. So tell me about, I guess, who, 
I would think that it is the watch enthusiasts that are kind of, I, I would say maybe most influential. I wouldn't say who's influencing watch purchases because I see your Instagram and there are like the celeb types, like what Kim Kardashian's wearing. And obviously that was tied to like the Pharrell auction and all of that. But Pharrell's on there. There are celebs. Kevin Hart's on this radio. What is it? A podcast? A radio show? I, you guys do a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like a video podcast, but we've done podcasts. We've done, obviously, like, uh, we have a whole series of videos on YouTube called Talking Watches. And some of them have, you know, millions and millions and millions of views just watching, you know, John Mayer or Kevin Hart or, you know, Ronnie Chang or Aziz Ansari talk about watch collecting. Um, it, you know, it's interesting. I think there's an, there's an aspect of celebrity culture in watches where celebrities can influence the the tastes and the kind of like, you know, shape of where the watch market might go. But it's also important to remember like, you know, celebrities can for better or for worse, like often sort of, you know, afford and get access to things that, that normal folks, you know, like myself couldn't get access to like, you know, maybe one of the most in, in culturally significant and important watches of the past few years. Um, and it's not a statement of like good or bad. It's just culturally significant was, uh, a Patek Philippe Nautilus uh, with like a Tiffany blue dial signed by Tiffany. And it partly became, you know, well-known because uh, one of them sold at auction for like six and a half million dollars. And this is a watch that retails for, I mean, a fraction of that, like, you know, tens of thousands of dollars selling for $6.5 million at auction. And then, you know, it, it only furthered in its cultural relevance and significance when folks like Jay-Z or LeBron James or others started to be seen wearing it. And it was really like, I mean, like the, the kind of like it watch for a while there. But so there's an element of that for sure. But then it's, and, and as with many things with celebrities, it's like an element of aspiration, but untouchability as well. Because like, I just don't know many people that could actually get access to that watch. Not even affordable. Uh, it's not even an affordability question. It's a more access question. Um, but I think like real watch enthusiasm doesn't live kind of, it doesn't go from the celebrity level and then trickle down. It actually, it's real grassroots stuff. And I'm talking here about like, you know, community chapters of watch enthusiasts who host meetups at like bars to bring watch rolls where they unroll a leather kind of like sheath full of watches that they've collected over the years. And it's everything from like a, the first watch they ever bought through to a busted, you know, whatever, uh, diving watch that their grandfather gave them that has an inscription on the back too. Um, you know, and it, it actually, it's more often than not that, that feeds the enthusiasm of watches. It's really bottom up kind of culture. It's, it's, it's grassroots stuff. And we, and we host these things because we just know that it's part of the fuel that keeps the fire burning really, really strong and growing. Um, a couple Mondays ago, we just put a put a put a credit card down at a dive bar here on the Lower East Side. Put an invite out to our Hodinkee community and said, "Come meet up with us here." We had to control the numbers of it because one time when we did this, we had seventeen thousand people like <laughs> RSVPing saying, "Yes, I'd love to come to that dive oh bar." Clearly, the dive bar would not have been happy with us if we showed up with that many people. So we end up putting kind of a bit of a lottery approach to it and, and a finite number of people that can come out. And we have to, but um, that place was heaving that night, and it was like every. Everywhere you looked, it was people looking down their wrist, talking about the watch they were wearing. Not always, again, like fancy, precious metals, like prestigious watches or brands. It was just like the stories, the the uniqueness, the kind of like 
Yeah, it's it, it's just fascinating in that regard. That like, yes, there's an influence aspect to it, celebrity aspect to it. There's certainly a cost stratification aspect to it, where having something expensive or rare will almost always invariably get people to like mm, raise their eyebrow or look. But sometimes it's just about like the cool watch you have, and I I, I almost would guarantee that if you ask like watch collectors or enthusiasts to tell you about their favorite watch. It very rarely would be like the most expensive or like desirable watch. It would just be like a watch that has an important piece of their own story attached to it or someone else's story attached to it. And I think that like, you know, I know we're kind of nearing the end of the conversation, but one of the things that drew me back into this category after having been at like, you know, broader fashion businesses in the past was, was that as the human kind of stories and sort of like community aspect to it, that like of all the things I wear when I go out the front door every day, like really the only thing I, I could probably tell you a real story about is this. And there's something about that that I think is special and magical. And, you know, I, I often say like in the world of smartwatches, like for me, what's smart is something I can give to my kids. They can give to their kids. And we'll have that thing that connects us over the course of time and really draws us in um, to something that we share in common, a love of, of this thing. I love this. Well, speaking of your authority, we this has kind of been a thread throughout our conversation, but um, yes, your collaboration, your authority. Tell me about what just launched. I, I consider it merch, <laughs> but yeah, who wants to wear the brand? How, how what, What's behind that launch? Yeah. Again, this is in some ways like responding to what you said earlier, which is when your community is, is really active and engaged and they ask for some things. Um, there's there's often been a theme or a thread over the years of people wanting to really have a piece of like Hodinkee's lifestyle. And, you know, we've, we've offered that up in a number of different ways tangibly. So Hodinkee Magazine is probably the most tangible and sort of well-known example of it where we published a sort of bound, beautiful printed edition of Hodinkee's journalism in a magazine form. And it's like a beautiful magazine. It isn't like a, a, the kind you find in your dentist's waiting room. It's like a coffee table book type magazine. And, and uh, we've made you know now 11 editions of that magazine. We have people who subscribe to it every single time. So as soon as it's published, they, they automatically get it. Um, but beyond that, people still wanted to have a piece. And in some ways, like a collaborative you know, watch like this is a piece of Hodinkee, although it says Hodinkee only on the back. So it's a little bit like a, a deep cut to kind of know that it's there and sort of know that it's a Hodinkee limited edition. And the merchandise collection was just an attempt to, frankly, trial and error, learn, learn if this is something that would resonate with our audience, that they would kind of appreciate and enjoy having a piece of the brand. Uh, we launched a collection about four weeks ago. It was um, a hat, a few tote bags, and uh, some field notes. And in keeping with the kind of approach, the recipe, if you will, to what makes for a successful collaboration, it isn't just like any hat made by anybody. It's it's an Ebbets Ebbet Vintage Flannels hat. The Ebbets has rich history of making this style of hat for you know Major League Baseball teams, but like you know 50, 60 years ago, the Negro Leagues, like you know different. Um, you know, eras of baseball were, were worn wearing this vintage style cap. It's like a beautiful wool cap, very soft, supple, and it just has a, a Hodinky H on the front. The fun kind of, you know, fun part that you would know if you have the inside scoop is the H is written in the same font that Ben used for the original blog of Hodinky. It's this kind of old English looking H and uh, we know that. And that's kind of the fun little, I suppose now anybody who's listening to Glossy Podcast knows that as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, of course, supporting the business, I bought one the day that it launched. It arrived at my house. I immediately lost it to my wife. She took it and not seen it since. And I had to buy a second one. And now I've started to buy a few others to gift to people. And 
everyone I've gifted is just like, wow, this is so cool. Like, you know, I'm even much of a hat person, but they've put it on, they've worn it. The tote bag, which I have one here, so I can like show it to you. On. It is It's become like my daily commuter. It holds my little, you know, flask of coffee in the front, my car keys, like everything <clears throat> I need. And, uh, you know, they're great products. It's a great tote manufacturer that made this one for us. And they're fun projects, um, you know. And, and I guess, like, practically speaking, to conceive of a watch and then bring it through production into reality is a 12 to 18 month process. So you asked earlier about like how often can we do these collaborations? It's nice to be able to make something that you can kind of design, conceive and create in about a month as well. So so refreshing. <laughs> Newness, yeah. keep it rolling. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> nice. Well, what's next? I know when you joined the company, there was a lot of talk about like you're being charged with growing, <laughs> taking it to the next level, growing. How, how will you do that in 2023? I love that, the phrase, man, you're being charged. So it's like a responsibility. <laughs> Get on that, I have that, Yeah, that like, I, you know, it's a chore I've been given. <laughs> I, have the, I have the incredible privilege to be able to kind of join a team of super talented people and like help us achieve common goals and dreams. And that's what it's all about. So I, I've had the chance to work for some amazing companies and brands. I've learned so much from the leaders I've worked for. Uh, you know, when I was approached about this opportunity, I got to know Ben and I learned about his story and his passion and just like the, 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 the kind of force of nature that he, ha- he is in this industry. And then the groups of people that he's been able to bring along for that journey. I was just, it was, it was infectious. I was, I, I caught the bug, right? And uh, yeah, so I think when I, when I joined, certainly the, the, the trajectory for growth had already been uh, put in place. The, the business has grown from, you know, again, fairly negligible revenues, even in year six, seven, eight, when it was still just watch editorial content through to the commerce side where the, the growth has been really significant. And that doesn't happen just like by accident. Clearly it is whether Ben would admit to a business plan or not. It's like, you know, really solid strategy and, and vision combined with like talent and like grit, you know, because you got to grind in a business like this when you're growing at that set of size and scale, hiring talented people along the way, but also working with great partners along the way. You know, uh, the, the business has raised uh, funds a couple of times, kind of a series A, series B, to use the kind of conventional language. Um, with that series B come the kind of, again, each time you sort of like recapitalize the business, typically you sort of raise the bar on what your ambitions are. So I've joined on with this idea of continuing to kind of foster and grow all the things that have made it successful to this point and layering in, you know, let's say an even further out vision of what this business can be. But the, the recipe, just because I enjoy it, doesn't like change, you know, considerably. It's content that builds communities, that gives opportunity for commerce. You touched on in the introduction, like Hodinkee Insurance, you know, from commerce, we've been able to introduce watch-related services like like Hodinkee Insurance, which is a partnership with Chubb, one of the top, you know, again, with us with partners. So it's always about working with the best partner at what they do. Chubb, one of the best insurers, uh, underwriters in the world, partnered with us to create a watch-specific insurance product where you can, I, I'm not, I'm not going to pick up my phone because I don't want to mess up the recording, but like you can, you can insure a watch on your mobile phone in a matter of under five minutes so easily and smoothly. Uh, it's just such a delight, actually, if I may say that, about an insurance product that has been a, a massive success for us, our highest growth revenue stream, one of our most profitable revenue streams, but also just something that is a solution to a problem. I have a nice watch or, or watches. I want to insure them. I don't know how to go about doing it. We've made it so simple and so easy, just mobile first. So that's, you know, that service has given us even ideas around what other services can we bring to bear for watch collectors and enthusiasts that help them to kind of make sure that they feel even better about the transactions they've made or the collections they've built. It makes their lives smoother, easier. 
as is often the case with technology, you're thinking about how to eliminate friction and how to make people enjoy the thing even more. And then I think, you know, just beyond that, like I've always thought about what are the kind of like greenfield opportunities for us? What are the things we're not doing at all today, but that we should have some claim to or some like, if you will use the word right to sort of try and compete in that area or create value for our partners, our stakeholders in that area. And so that's definitely given us thought to certain things. I mean, I, I can I can share because it's not private, but uh, we'll be opening our first physical store uh, later this year. Ah, that's in ask. Soho here. Yeah, it's uh, it's in the former location that was occupied for many, many years by Supreme, the brand. And then when they left to take on a larger footprint, uh, they had the store uh, vacant and open and they've sublet the space to us for length of time. We'll be opening our store. And it's funny, Joe, because I was thinking like in, in advance of this podcast that the last time you interviewed me, we talked about like the store of the future was those the terminology because that was a piece of of of, of the farfetch um, puzzle and i said in some ways the story of the future is a great name because like technically the future is still yet to happen it's always evolving and so like you know i've worked in like, the digital side of this industry now for the better part of the last 10 years but now i'm getting a chance to work with some really talented people on a physical store again for the first time quite frankly in a very long time and it's so exciting to think about like well how does this brand number one show up in the real world how do we advance to to use that story of the future thinking how do we advance the industry or the way that people shop or, or or congregate around this this product in a way that's novel and meaningful and authentic to us how do we make sure that it feels like something destination worthy? Because nowadays none of us have to go uh, out of our out of our doors. Like we can sit behind our computer screens if we want to. But you know, knowing that the physical shopping experience for watches is still really important is how does that show up for us? So uh, I, I'm not going to spoil the surprise because it's not ready to be shared yet. But more to come. There's a, a really exciting project on the way, and that's um, one of those opportunities for, like you said, that I've been charged with in terms of the growth <laughs> to sort of think about. This as a new frontier for Hodinkee, um, not just to show up once in a while in your life in a physical way, like at a dive bar or in a, in a <laughs> magazine on your, on, your, on your desk, but actually more on the day-to-day, like as you're strolling around New York City. We, we're there. We'll be there for you, and you're, we're going to welcome you in anytime you want to discover or talk about watches or you know, just explore. Oh, my gosh. And if you want to work in this store, you best start studying. <laughs> <laughs> this is no yeah i definitely think it'll be it'll attract a certain uh type of person who's really passionate about the category and wants to kind of like um it's really cool working for a brand like hoodie and i've experienced this at some other brands that i've worked for uh and been been a part of the team and part of the journey is like it, it it definitely attracts people who are like oh it's a dream to work there because it's like you know the old saying it's like it's only it's only a job if you'd rather be doing something else it's like for some people this is the thing they would rather do other than anything else so it'll be our good fortune i'm sure just like assemble a team of amazingly talented people that love watches oh my gosh i could talk to you for days and days and days this is like i'm really inspired i would say i have to ask my last question silly cheesy but like say I literally, I watched an episode of Don't Judge Me, the Antiques Roadshow. Yes, <laughs> and I was a, like, a good friend of mine. A good friend of mine is on the British version of the Antiques Roadshow, so definitely not judging. I'm a huge fan of hers, and what she does is incredible. She's like an art, art, art expert on the British version. It was, it's everything. And so I was yeah, like, do awesome. I need a Cartier watch after seeing this watch? But anyway, if I'm, a, if <laughs> I am like, I would say. Not a, I'm a starter. I'm moving on from, I don't know, Timex Casio world. <laughs> yes. what, do, what, 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 what do you recommend for a gal like me? Like, what's a good starter investment watch? Yeah, you know, the thing is, is and this is not a dodge to your question, because I will give you an opinion, uh, and I'll recommend a few ideas for you to look at. 
But the answer is so personal to you. And that's the joy of watch collecting is that like the journey to get to what it is that you purchase is so personal. It has to be what speaks to you aesthetically, intellectually, emotionally, um, you know, and again, it could, it could be any number of those different sort of levers that ultimately become the one that you pull to, to get the watch that you love. So I'll, I'll just answer it in a way, but sharing your personal like experience. That. For me, the watches that I first started to buy that were, you know, nice watches. Again, not, not that a, a less expensive watch isn't nice, but like more expensive, more considered purchases was, you know, I've worked in this industry for probably close to 20 years now. And it's, I've, I've been fortunate to have a journey that led me to some really beautiful, incredible companies along the way. And those companies made timepieces in, in, in each case. And so the ones I wanted to collect were uh, timepieces from the businesses that I worked for. The first one was Louis Vuitton, which makes watches alongside, you know, leather goods and accessories and, and, and luggage and travel accessories and all those things. Um, it, it's still to this day probably my favorite watch, just that that I, you know, wristwatch. I have a pocket watch that's incredibly special for me, but that's a family heirloom. The, the wristwatch from Louis Vuitton is just because it represents a period in a chapter of my career, my life, where I was growing a lot. I was um, learning a lot more about myself and like, who I am. And it just was like a, a milestone piece for me. And then Tag Heuer, I, I was yeah. able to buy a Tag Heuer in Monaco, the famous Steve McQueen watch, the iconic uh. Steve McQueen watch. And then the third was Cartier. And um, I, I didn't actually get the Cartier watch while I worked at Cartier, but I always wanted it. Uh, I, it came to me much later in my life. And the reason that that one now is really special for me, beyond the fact that I, I worked for the brand Cartier, was, um, you know, there's a watch within the Cartier lineup called the Santos. And it's named for an early aviator called uh, Alberto Santos Dumont. And he was a Brazilian aviator, short in stature, about five foot one, who flew airplanes around the Eiffel Tower and used the Santos watch. He was friends with, I think, Pierre Cartier. He had him design the watch so that he could wear his wristwatch to time his loops, you know, so that he knew how much time he had in the air. And uh, as he's a Brazilian aviator, my wife is Brazilian, so it had the sort of dual benefit right. of being a Cartier and uh, named after a Brazilian, uh, you know, icon. So the Santos was sort of the watch for me. But I, like in that story, I guess I would sort of share the advice of like, it, it's, I think it's just like this added extra element to the watch where it goes beyond just that I liked it or, yeah. uh, it, you know, it's, it, it, it's something about you and your life and a story um, that gives you a piece of connectivity to this, um, you know, inanimate device that somehow brings animation and, and, and spirit to it. And that would be my advice. I mean, but look, if you're just looking for a straightforward answer, like a Cartier tank is a great way to start. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> but I'm gonna, says, beautiful watch. I'm going to find a more, more of a, I'm going to find a strong connection here though. You're yeah. inspiring me. And also sometimes we do these podcasts that women are in their shoe closet. We should have been in the, in the midst of your watch collection here. <laughs> it sounds spectacular. <laughs> yeah. I'm in the office today, but like anytime I could do it from my home office and I'd be happy to turn the camera on and show you. Some oh. fun ones. They, a lot of them, again, nowadays, I'm, I'm really on this Hodinkee limited edition collecting, uh, you know, kind of quest. So I've got a lot of the Hodinkee limited editions, but again, a lot of them are really, really fun, uh, cool pieces, collaborations. So For sure. Oh my gosh, Jeff, this was so, so yeah, good. Jill, it was a pleasure. Yeah. It's always good to connect with you. <laughs> 
You as well. Thank you for all your time today. And thank you to our producer who let us go on and on. This was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. Loved it. And I love you guys. Love the Glossy team. And this is such a pleasure and privilege. So thank you very much. I can't tell you how many people, like mostly connected to our industry, of course, but I've come to these. I I heard you on the Glossy podcast talking about the store of the future. And and I always turn bright red. But I'm like excited to have had the chance to speak to you and be a part of this platform. I love the work you guys do. So thank you very much. Oh my gosh. Thank you. He's back. Yeah. <laughs> That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to the Glossy Podcast. See you next week.